Did you guys know that YouTube, you've heard of YouTube? It was started in 2005. It was probably about 15 years ago that I started watching videos on the internet. And I still remember one of the first sermons that I watched on that site because it was uploaded in 2009. So it was very, very early, actually. It was a pastor, it was by a pastor I'd never heard before. His name was Paul Washer. And he was preaching at a youth conference in 2002. And this video of him preaching was recorded, and unbeknownst to him, somebody uploaded it to this new site called YouTube, and it ended up getting massive amounts of views. In fact, the name of the sermon that the person put up, not that what Paul Washer said, but the name that they put on the, the thing was Shocking Youth Message. If you've never seen it before, I would recommend going to take a look at it. Very, very poor quality. That sermon, along with six others, was featured by Tim Challies on his, his very popular blog, challies.com. And he did a, a sermon series called, it was seven sermons, that he called the Great Sermon Series. And I don't know if you ever listen to or watch sermons from great preachers, but if you've never seen some of these, I, I would recommend going to look at these seven messages. I mean, some of these, for some reason, God used that a particular person at a, at a specific time and place in history to just change and affect so many people. And one was that Paul Washer sermon's shocking youth message, but one of them was John Piper's seashells sermon. If, and a lot of people my age that are in ministry, if you just say seashells and John Piper, they will know what you're talking about because it was that impactful for so many people. So if you watch those, watch those little video introductions, watch those videos. Well, um, it, and it is, it is pretty amazing that sometimes God will take a sermon and then, like I said, use it in some way like that, that they never even intended to be. Like Piper was like, it was just a sermon to him, you know? And Paul Washer said, I, I never recorded it. I never put it on this site. And all of a sudden I started getting letters saying that people were saved because of this. Well, today we're going to look at probably one of the greatest sermons that was ever preached. And it was never recorded for a podcast. It was never put on YouTube because it was the first Christian sermon. The first Christian sermon ever preached was by the disciple named Peter. Some say that apart from the Lord Jesus' preaching, that this was the greatest sermon ever preached in a lot of different ways. But here's the thing. With the power of the Holy Spirit, every Christian can communicate the good news of the gospel message by following Peter's example of, of being simple, bi biblical, Christ-centered, and reasonable. And that's, that, that's kind of what you can see in this message from Peter. So let's take a look at this amazing sermon from Acts chapter 2. It was preached 50 days after the resurrection of Christ at, at the Feast of Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem. But first of all, look at who was doing this preaching. In verse 14, it was, says it was Peter standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, and he addressed the crowds. A couple thousand people probably that could hear him. Peter, he goes on after this message in the book of Acts to have a very prominent place in the new church here, the early church in the book of Acts. But let's not forget, this is the same guy who 50 days earlier was denying that he even knew who Jesus was. Isn't it wonderful that we serve a God who is willing to forgive even the worst sinner? After his resurrection, Jesus reinstates Peter, offers forgiveness to him, 
And you can see here, this is just a testimony to the Holy Spirit's working in Peter's life. He goes from denying Jesus and hiding out so that nobody finds out where he's at to now standing up, addressing the authorities and addressing thousands of people here, large crowds telling them about the good news about Jesus and even challenging the religious leaders, as we'll see in a couple chapters. Peter experienced the life-changing power of God's amazing grace firsthand, and he called people to repentance and to receive the same forgiveness that he experienced. It's the same forgiveness that's available to you and I or to anybody who's never received Jesus as Lord. The message that Peter is preaching is the same message for you and me. God can change your life just like he changed mine and just like he changed Peter's. Now we see here, Peter, he's, he's standing up and he begins preaching. Now, Peter had no formal education. Yeah, he was taught by Jesus, right? The best teacher ever. But, and I do think that he had, you know, a gut level understanding, the Holy Spirit helping him of, of what the Bible was all about and preaching the good news about Jesus. But you know what? I bet he still spoke with that Galilean accent that was so easily recognizable. So what made his sermon so great? You know, we think that, you know, Peter wasn't that eloquent. He didn't, ha he didn't use flowery language. He was very simple spoken. But that's what, it, that's what really touched people. It was simple. It was biblical. It was Christ-centered, and it was reasonable. He starts by answering the question in verse 12. They ask the question, what does this mean? And then he ends in verse 37 by answering the question, what shall we do, that the people were all asking. What does this mean? That's the question that everybody was asking when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples in the form of a, a wind-like sound and the appearance of fire leading them to speak in these known languages, telling about the great works of God. And verse 13 said that some people in the crowd mocked them and they thought that they were drunk. Now, Peter begins by answering this question in verse 14 by saying, hey, listen up. Pay attention. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. He says, basically, it's only 9 a.m. in the morning. We don't start drinking until afternoon. <laughs> and I'll admit, that was pretty, I've always thought that was a little funny. But it does make sense because this would have been a holiday meal, right? It would have been a holiday meal later on in that day, 9 a.m., which is what he said, it's only 9. That was the time that they would gather for prayer. So this is like the church service time. This is prayer time. Later on, they're going to celebrate the Feast of the Pentecost with a meal, which they would have food and wine at the meal later on in the day. But he's saying there's no way that we could be drunk now. You know, these are all good Jewish people here. Later on, Paul will compare these two things by saying, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery or leads to sinning, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he preaches this awesome sermon message here, and he uses three Old Testament uh, passages in his sermon. The first is Joel 2, 28 through 32, and he uses this to show how the giving of the Holy Spirit here was predicted by the prophet Joel in Scripture. Actually, these events were, at, were foreshadowed in the book of Exodus as well, because we know that the Holy Spirit has always been active. We know that. So if you remember, Moses was the leader of God's people. And everyone, at one point, everyone, this large amounts of people were coming to Moses to settle every little dispute. And Moses' father-in-law told him that, hey, this isn't wise, and you need some other people to help judge in these matters because there were thousands of people that wanted to come to Moses. And Moses did that. And in Numbers, 
the book of Numbers, we read this. The Lord said to Moses, Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take the spirit that is upon you, and I will put that same upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it yourself alone. So God did that very thing. He took the spirit of God that was on Moses and gave it to the 70 elders, and they also began to prophesy. They spoke in utterances, and, and two of them wandered outside of the camp. One of them was named Eldad, and the other was named Medad. So Eldad and Medad, they were out there, and they were prophesying. And then Joshua, Moses' chief lieutenant, came to him and said, Hey, look what these guys are doing. They're usurping your authority. They're out there doing this own thing and prophesying. And, and uh, Joshua's a little concerned here. But Moses said to Joshua, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all of the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord had put his spirit upon them. You see, Moses' dream was that all of God's people would have the same spirit of God on them. And that way, they wouldn't have to go to the professional ministers whenever a need come up. If a person needed prayer and needed something, wouldn't it be great, Moses is saying, if they could just go to their fellow believer? That they could go to somebody who wasn't officially a priest, but, who, but we could all be priests, and so they could go to one another. That would be wonderful. Well, that prayer of Moses became a prophecy later on in Jewish history at a time of terrible crisis. So the land had been plagued by locusts, and this was God's judgment on the land, and it was just this catastrophic event. And God spoke judgment to the people through Joel, the prophet, because the people had turned away from God. However, he tempered his message of judgment with hope. And we read in Joel 2, 28 through 32 this, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That was the words from Joel. Well, Peter said in his sermon that this is the fulfillment. What they are experiencing in, in, in his day is a fulfillment of what Joel prophesied about. And the Holy Spirit now is poured out, not just on 70 elders or not just on 140 and not just on the men and not just on the women but the servants and everybody, the whole flock of God. God pours out his Holy Spirit on all of us. And you know what? There's no such thing as a Christian who has not been anointed by the Holy Spirit for ministry. That's why Paul later tells the Corinthian church, for by one spirit we are all baptized into one body. We don't all have the same gifts, but we all have the same spirit. And we are called to be deeply involved in ministry in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't, you know, I don't know if you noticed this, but Peter changed Joel's prophecy a little bit. I mean, it was almost word for word, wasn't it? But what's changed is the very beginning. In Acts chapter 2, look at verse 17. Peter adds this phrase, and in the last days it shall be. Well, Joel didn't say that, right? So what Peter is, in essence, he's saying is like, this has come to pass now, and now is the last days. So, the, you know, the Jewish people believed in two different time periods. 
the current age and the age to come. And for them, the second age, the time period, was going to begin when the great day of the Lord, the, the judgment day, wherein God would send his Messiah to restore Israel to its prominent place once again. So what Peter is teaching here is that the day had come with the arrival of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And Jesus himself taught that the kingdom of God had now arrived, was being fulfilled with his arrival, because Jesus is the true king. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a mustard seed. It's really small, almost you could barely see it, unless you have your reading glasses on. I mean, it's that tiny, but you plant it in the garden, and it grows to be a big tree where birds can even come and make their nest. It's like it's real small, and it grows slowly, almost invisibly. And so now, the kingdom of God, it's not going to be in a big temple. In fact, God, he doesn't dwell in a house built by human hands, Scripture tells us. So now, we don't have to go to a mountain to meet with God. Now God dwells among his people. And that was the whole idea of the vision at Pentecost, with the sound and with the flames coming. It's like, now there's no longer a mountain with flames on top that people are afraid to touch. Now, it's all inside of us now. That's the picture of Pentecost that we talked about last week. So now we are living in the end times. The kingdom of God is here, and the kingdom of God is growing, and the kingdom of God will be finally completed once Jesus comes back again. Theologians call this the already but not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. Or if you want to use bigger words, you could say it's inaugurated, but it's not yet fully consummated. It has begun, and it is growing, and it's no longer, we're not taking land, we're not building buildings anymore, but it's about the people of God having the spirit of God, building the kingdom of God by sharing the love of God and the good news with each other. And that's what he's trying to get across here. Now, the second part of this prophecy, I do believe there's going to come a day, in verse 20, um, whether it's allegorical or whether it's literal, I mean, it, it says in verse 20 that the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon is going to be turned to blood before the day of the Lord, the great and magnificent or mighty day. So it's like we're in this, this middle time, right? And one day, I mean, we're kind of like living in this time of grace. And one day it's all going to, when Jesus comes back again, that's it. That's the wrap, right? But until that day, we, we have time. And so he says, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. I mean, that was the message that Joel preached. That's the message that Peter is preaching. That's the message that we preach. Today, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And it's simple, right? It's so simple that even a child couldn't understand it. It's so simple that it's the biblical message that we need to be preached today. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. So Peter explains Pentecost to everybody who was gathered there to hear about it. And next he goes on to talk about the, the execution of Jesus. So many people in that crowd that day had probably heard about Jesus. Now, maybe some of those people were there 50 days earlier for Passover when Jesus was killed, when Jesus died on the cross. Maybe some of them weren't. Uh, but even if they weren't actually physically there, they probably had heard about Jesus. Peter says that they knew about the miracles that Jesus did. He called them works, wonders, and signs. When Jesus was walked the earth, he did those kind of miracles because he loved people. He saw people in need, and he, he touched them. He healed them. He showed them love. He had compassion on the, on, and love for people. But there was also a deeper meaning because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. 
And those claims were authenticated by the miracles that God did through Jesus. That's why Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus, the religious leader, the Pharisee? He went to Jesus in John chapter 3. He came at night because he wanted to ask him. And he even said, we know you are from God because of the signs that you are doing. No one could do these things unless God was with them. And so, like, you know, secretly, Pharisees, they knew he was from God, right? At least some of them did. Nicodemus did. He says, we know that what you're doing, it, it's not from you. It's from God, and it can't be explained any other way. Peter said to the crowd that day, he says, as you yourselves know. You, you can't deny it, right? Am I lying? If I'm lying, tell me I'm lying, but I'm not lying. You know I'm not lying. You saw it for yourselves. Two times in his sermon, he appeals to these things that they know to be true, that it was undeniable, that Jesus walked the earth, that Jesus claimed to be the son of man, that you know from Daniel, that Jesus was delivered up to death and killed at the hands of evil men. God knew it. God knew it. He said this was foreordained beforehand. God knew it. God planned it. And he says that this was no accident. Jesus predicted it. This was God's plan from the beginning. But Peter wants to make it clear to all of his listeners and to all of us, you're still guilty of the crime. You crucified him. Yes, God can take evil and turn it into something for good. We see that in the life of Joseph. We see that all throughout the Bible. You know, one of my favorite sayings from history, and maybe it was Martin Luther, maybe it was somebody else, the saying is that God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. He does it all the time. But that doesn't mean that we still aren't guilty for our sins. We are all guilty of our sins against the holy God. And Peter says, you did this. Now, this isn't, a lot of people throughout history have used Peter's words here to try to blame a certain group of people to say, well, it was the Jewish people who killed Jesus. And, and, and then other people have argued, well, no, it was the Roman system that killed it. And other people say, well, you know, it was the crowds. It was just the people in the crowds, they called out for it. And people will use this to try to argue about who killed Jesus. Was it this group? Was it that group? But let me tell you something. You know what killed Jesus? It was my sin. He died for my sin. He died for your sin. This is one of the things that really wrecked me spiritually a long time ago. It was when I realized that Jesus died for my sin, and I needed forgiveness. It was my sins that held him there. I was the guilty party. But praise God, look at verse 24. It says that God raised him to life, that it wasn't possible for him to stay dead. It wasn't possible because he was sinless. Death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. He rose again, and he is alive. He is alive today. Now, Peter uses a second scripture, and this one comes from Psalms 16, verses 8 through 11. You know, it's, some people debate, by the way, whether or not we should use, you ever talk with non-Christians, and somebody says, some people say, well, we can't really use the Bible because they don't really believe it's the word of God. And some people say, well, you need to like, try to win somebody first of all, and then you can use the scripture later on. Well, I don't think we have to do that. I think when we're talking with non-Christians, here's my advice, is use the Bible. It's the word of God. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Spurgeon compared the word of God to being a lion in a cage. And he said, imagine an army of people coming out 
and they want to defend this lion in the cage with swords and with shields or whatever. And his advice is, why would you do such a thing? You don't need to defend a lion. Open up the cage door, let him out. He will take care of himself. And that's like us with God's word. We don't need to try to defend it. Let God's word do his work. And that's what Peter is doing here. He's quoting from Psalm 16. And he's referencing King David. King David, the greatest king in all of Israelite history. But the thing with the great King David and all great kings and all great leaders is what? They're all in the past. They're all dead. Verse 32 says, This Jesus God raised up as we are all witnesses. So he's, he's appealing to this fact, this reason fact. Think about this. The patriarchs of our faith, he's saying, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're all dead and they're buried in tombs. Muhammad is dead and buried. Buddha died and stayed dead. Confucius is dead and he's still dead. Even King David is dead and Peter says his tomb is still here. But Jesus is alive. I mean, reasonably speaking, if the Romans hated this, this movement of Christ followers, why didn't they just point to the tomb? Why didn't they just produce the body and say, you are all fools? They couldn't because the tomb was empty. So they had to make up some kind of story. Everyone there was giving witness to this fact of history that Jesus is alive. And not only that, he ascended into heaven into glory. And he sent his promised Holy Spirit among his people in a unique way to, to testify to the, this fact. And then one final passage that Peter uses to reason with these people comes from Psalms 110. Psalms 110 is the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. Jesus used this all the time. And it says this in verse 34 and 35. David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, here's the quote, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus used this when he was talking with the Pharisees. He was arguing with them. And Jesus says, well, how do you explain this? In Luke 20, in Mark 12, in Matthew chapter 22, when he's talking with the Pharisees, um, he used this scripture. I think this is why Peter quotes this this day. I think he quotes this because he heard Jesus doing the very same thing. And so he, he just does what he heard his Lord and Savior and teacher doing. And how are you going to answer this one? You can't make sense of this, can you? And I'll tell you why it was so confusing for them and why this really threw a monkey wrench into all the Pharisees' uh, reasoning. Because their question was this. How can someone of the seed of David, in other words, how can David's descendant also be the Lord of David? Because... You know, the father always had dominance over a son. A son never is greater than their father. Well, David was preceded by Jesus by a thousand years. So it's inconceivable to the Jewish mind how David would look to Jesus as his Lord. But as Jesus, and now David explains, this is exactly what David is saying when he wrote Psalms 110. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So if you look at this, the Lord says to my Lord, those are actually two different words in the Greek and in the Hebrew. One, the first name, the Lord, that's Yahweh. That's the personal name that Yahweh, the Lord, gave to Moses. That's the name he's saying the Lord is, so he's the one who's speaking, and he's saying to my Lord. Now, the second Lord is uh, translated as Adonai, and it is like what we now say is Christ is Lord, uh, lowercase Lord. 
Um, because that's like one of the names that the Jewish people began to use for God, since they weren't actually using the name Yahweh. They never said, if Yahweh, we don't even know if it was pronounced Yahweh. We're just guessing, because they never said it. They never even wrote it. They just wrote four letters. So we're guessing it was Yahweh because it was so holy that they didn't want to use that name. So they came up with other names to talk about God. And one of them was Lord, as in lowercase l, as in the Hebrew word Adonai. So what he's saying here is the Lord, the first Lord, is referring to Yahweh, the personal name of God. And he's saying to, to my Lord, or my Lord God, or the sovereign one, sit at my right hand. So yeah, David is basically saying God is going to take his Messiah and elevate him to his right hand to the seat of cosmic authority. And it, think about that. What did we just read at the beginning? Daniel chapter 7. So the ancient days, Yahweh is going to say to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. It's the same thing about the vision that we saw. So when Jesus died and was resurrected, then he was elevated to the highest position. And he was given the name that is above every name so that all who call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. And that's how Peter explains this truth. And then he ends his sermon message in verse 36 by saying this, Know for certain, for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he is the one. You see, it's all, it's all making sense now, right? If the Holy Spirit was working in their lives, they're saying this light bulb moment came, up, came on. and was like, yes, like I get it now. So Jesus was the man who was crucified, and he was the God who was raised from the dead. And he is in heaven now. He is Lord and Savior. He is the one who has given the name that is above every name, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is Lord. This is the gospel message. It's, it's so simple, yet it's so profound. So what will you do with that message? The people who heard this in Jesus' day, it says they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. It wasn't just something in their mind, you know. It was something that hit them right here when they realized that they were guilty. I mean, I remember I was like 13, 14 years old when it first hit me, when I realized that, that I am guilty, that I needed to be forgiven of my sins, that this isn't just, you know, it is factual. I love that Christianity is the most reasonable, it makes the most sense, and it is historically factual. But I need to repent of my sins. And if you're, if you're not a believer, you must repent of your sins. You've got to ask God to forgive you for all those things. And I, don't even, I, I could lead you in a prayer if you want me to lead you in a prayer, but you know when you do wrong, right? There's something in you that says, like, God, I'm, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive you of your sins. And he will purify you of all unrighteousness. But you need to come and seek him. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What a message. Do you think that you could preach a sermon like Peter preached, like Peter preached that day? I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if you're ever going to become YouTube famous with a sermon. You know, maybe not, probably not, right? God might not ever call you to preach to thousands of people in a, in a public place outdoors. Like he, I, I bet Peter never thought that, though, right? Peter the fisherman. Could you imagine? 
with a hick Galilean accent. People made fun of him for his accent. Oh, you're one of them, right? You were with them. I can tell the way you talk. But it doesn't matter the way you talk. It matters the message that you're communicating. That's what matters. And if you are a Christian, the same Holy Spirit that led Peter to preach this amazing message is in you as well. It's in you as well. So it doesn't need to be complicated. It can just be simple. It can be biblical, and it can be about Jesus Christ. That's the message that we carry with us. That's the, that's the message that we remember this morning, and that's the message that lives in us, and that's the message that we carry throughout the week. So let's pray. Let's pray and ask God to help us to be bold and to tell others to repent and follow Christ because Jesus is alive and he is Lord of all.